the, the NFL stands for not for long. Second down and goal from just inside the two. Backs offset. Sharga and Armstead. Rollout. Walker still running out. Looks to the left. Wide open. Thompson touchdown. Colin Thompson with the touchdown. There was nobody within 20 yards. What of a catch off the bobble. Colin Thompson scoops it up. Lofting quarter of the end zone. It is caught for the touchdown. The first NFL touch for Colin Thompson is a score. Welcome back to another episode of Not For Long Media. I'm your host, Colin Thompson. I'm here with Justin Ayers. But before we get to this Just In segment, we're going to talk a little bit about of what to expect on this episode. This is going to be a best of episode. You're going to hear a little bit, five to ten minutes, maybe a little bit more. It's really hard for me. This is like my baby here trying to cut these down. To I started with 30 minutes. It would have been a five-hour podcast. <laughs> but we're not Joe Rogan, uh, to quote. Justin Ayers. So we're going to be a little leaner and I respect that. And you're a smart man. We're going to be a little leaner. You guys are going to be able to hear from all of our guests. We've had hall of famers. We've had Super Bowl champions. We've had actors. We've had chefs. We've had, you name it, sports center broadcasters. We've had it all. Uh, and we're very thankful for everyone coming on. And it really just hit me talking through that, how cool this first little ride's been. Um, we're thankful for our sponsors. I'll get into them. We're thankful for everyone that's coming on, and it's been a lot of fun. I'm thankful to Dion, Autumn, and Justin. And, and this is a, a next chapter of Not For Long Media moving forward after we got our first 10 episodes down, and it's been we've learned a lot, and it's been it's been fun. So before we get to this, Justin, I want to talk about our sponsors. You guys know them by now. Cape May Brewing Company, they're new to our team here. I live in Cape May, and uh, I don't want to say I'm a frequent at Cape May Brewing Company, but I frequently taste their beers on the weekend and really love their stuff. Ryan and the team over there do a fantastic job and it's really easy to get to. Uh, it's right near the Wildwood Cape May airport right there, right off the parkway, five minutes off the parkway. It's 10 minutes from Cape May and it's super accessible. They have all different types of beers for whatever flavor profile and taste you want from IPAs to, I, I love their new boat ramp champ. Uh, they pair with qualified captain. If you follow them on Instagram, check them out. Cape May brewing company, check them out online. They have a huge tasting room. You can, Walk yourself through uh, the whole brewery and give yourself a self-guided tour. I absolutely love it there. It's a great time to go with friends and family. The original Fudge Kitchen, check them out. Mother's Day's coming up. Birthdays, holidays, treat your loved ones with some fudge. I was in there this weekend. We had some friends in town, and they were getting fudge and bringing it back uh, to their friends at work because you know they, they have to report back with goodies when you come to Cape May. So it's delicious. I had the maple walnut the other day for the first time. It's now moved up ahead of the peanut butter for me as my number one flavor. The plain chocolate's great. I had the double chocolate the other day. It's fantastic. They have a ton of other chocolates. Uh, they have all these chocolate covered pretzels, homemade Reese's, whatever, peanut butter cups, just fantastic stuff. Really everything. Chocolate covered strawberries. So and they ship across the country, which is really cool. And they do a great job over there. Check them out at fudgekitchens.com. And then finally, our friends at Wealth Advisory Services, Paul. And Dave, located in Doylestown, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, right outside of my hometown, right in my hometown. And two great guys that I've been able to work with now for years. My family's been able to work with. And really, they've educated me uh, to someone that has literally no idea what I'm talking about, too. Maybe knowing a little bit more, but still no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to stocks and, and managing my money and, 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 and budgets and uh, expanding the portfolio to be in a bunch of different things. So it's been fun. I enjoy working with them. They're extremely knowledgeable 
Uh, they're always accessible and they're guys that I really enjoy working with on a daily basis. So check them out, wealthadvisoryservices.com, Kate May Brewing Company, and the original Fudge Kitchen. So Justin Ayers, what's going on, man? Hey, man. <clears throat> We're bringing it back. Best of. Got a little this Justin for you. Then we'll get set for all these interviews. We got it. You're right. You can't have, you can't, have, you can't do an hour long. You can't have 13, one hour long uh, best ofs. So you gotta, you gotta. It was tough it- for me, man. I'll be honest with you. It was tough. Like I was texting the group right before this meeting. I'm like, yeah, I need uh, 15 to 30 minutes. You know, that's what I'm kind of heading on, you know, working with. And then I want to cut it down more and more and more, but I have like four or five, six, seven favorite parts of every podcast. So I was sitting there with like 30 minute episodes. We were looking at five hours and my computer would exploded downloading it. So I don't know if it would even happen. <laughs> Every part is awesome. So yeah, it's, it's gotta be tough to keep it tight, but all right. Uh, two things for this, Justin. Uh, first up NFL changed the rules surrounding the Jersey numbers that players can wear. Now running backs, fullbacks, receivers, tight ends, linebackers, and DBs can all wear single digits. Uh, linebackers, they used to only be able to wear 50 to 59, 90 to 99. Now they can just wear 10 through 49. Like there's a whole lot of uh, numbers. I'm not a math guy, so this isn't really my forte, but, uh, Tom Brady bucks quarterback, not a fan. He took to Instagram and he said, uh, good luck trying to block the right people. Now going to make for uh, a lot of bad football, Colin, as uh, somebody who actually has a Jersey number, uh, how did, how did you feel about the, uh, the Jersey number change? Well, the reason why I sent you this article, uh, Justin, that I want to talk about is because I wanted to talk about what Tom Brady's talking about. I don't know if everybody understands when he says, good luck blocking the right people. Because usually, right, if I'm working on a block from the, I have the defensive end to the strong side linebacker, the strong side linebacker is going to be wearing a 40s number. Maybe he's wearing a 90s number. So, like, at the end of the day, for the, for the quarterback, he, he sets the mic point, you see him point, and then that bases your protection and your run game off of the mic point, right? So he's pretty much saying that good luck blocking the right guys, meaning this could mess some people up and they'll end up blocking the wrong people. I think it's going to be interesting at first, um, but I think it'll be adapted and I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal, but Hey, Tom Brady knows a lot more about protections than I do a lot more about a lot more about Mike points than I do. So I'm sure he's got a valid point. If he came on here, if we ever got Tom Brady, you're welcome to come on Tom, just in case you're a frequent listener and, and touch more on it. But me personally, I don't know too much about that, but I know that's what he's inferring to that. Hey, listen, the Mike points are going to be different. Players aren't going to be able to a running backs not going to be able to find a linebacker. It could be a defensive back coming free who's wearing a single digit, or is it a linebacker coming free? You can't tell the difference. If 30's coming free, it's a defensive back, right? And maybe the running back has them. If 40's coming free, maybe the tight end has it because it's a linebacker. That's maybe the best way I can explain it. Um, so that's that. What do I think about it? I will hopefully still be repping the number 86. I love the number. It's my number now in a couple of different places, Temple and obviously Carolina, uh, in Tampa Bay, the XFL where Justin and I met. Uh, so, yeah, the 86 number, I think, would be okay. I don't think I'd look good in a single digit. I'm too chunky, um, too, <laughs> too much too much pasta, too much original fudge kitchen. Uh, so I, I just couldn't. I'm not a good enough athlete to wear a single digit, so I know where I stand with the 86. A lot of people think I should be wearing a 70s number, but I'm going to stick with the 86 and pull that off. So yeah. I have to be honest, before you sent me this, I didn't know a ton about, like, the numbering system. Like, I've heard some football guys talk about it. I only know jersey numbers from, like, you know, as a fan buying them. Like, you know, like T.Y. T.Y. Hilton, number 13. Like, I, oh, I, OK, that's how I know that. But I don't know, like the, the weak side linebacker protection schemes. Uh, you got to you got to keep us updated whenever training camp starts to get fired up and uh, and all that stuff. Just like 
if the conversations are taking place behind the scenes, Hey guys, we have to figure this out because the numbers don't make sense anymore. That's right. No, I, it's going to be interesting. It really is. I mean, in college though, like some defensive ends were seven. It's not like college, but they get it done in college too. So we'll find a way to get it done. Uh, we should be able to, you know, the best in the world, quote unquote. So you should be able to figure it out. Exactly. All right. Next up, this Justin under the NFL's new CBA players, uh, players will not be tested for the chemicals and marijuana from April 20th to August 9th. So it's a big deal. I like how they started on 420. Very appropriate. Uh, and, but yeah, it's the CBA, you know, they raised the, the threshold for a positive marijuana test. They got rid of suspensions for positive drug tests. Instead, the, the NFL is just going to do fines do a fine system instead of suspensions. Um, you know, a lot of guys are using this for, for therapy. A lot of guys are using this instead of prescription opioids, which are terrible for you. Uh, it's a good thing. I think, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely an interesting thing to discuss the opioids topic absolutely in that regard I, I wish there was an education um i don't know if things have been clinically tested for for marijuana like they were for obviously opioids where there's backing of knowledge and facts and this is horrible for you for x y and z you know obviously there has to be there's always a negative repercussion for something obviously for some things it's smaller than others but I, like i could see in 20 years your nutritionist giving you something to help with anxiety or help with sleep or that's only another really way you, re you recover. You know, you can do what you want, but the rest of it's all just pain maintenance, but sleeping is the only way you get it done. So, Hey, listen, this is going to help you get that from eight to nine hours or help you get from six to seven hours. Cause you don't have anxiety about the game tomorrow, you know, and it's something you could take before bed or something you could take from meetings to help you focus and relax a little bit. So uh, I'm for it. If it's going to help make people healthier, happier, um, absolutely. Why not? The reason why I, I, I sent this to you, Justin, it was because I think the one thing that people got twisted for with drug tests were that people just get tested year round anytime. So that's why I want to give a little information on this as well. You get tested for drug test for, for steroids or human growth hormone or whatever it is, anything that's going to help you quote unquote cheat. Uh, you get tested for, for that type of thing year round, anytime they could come within eight hours, they could be right at your door and you're being in a cup. Right. So I've had random drug tests where I'm working at a temple and they'll sort of be there in a minute. I've had random drug tests where I forgot to fill out where I was. I, I, I was supposed to be in Cape May, New Jersey. That's where it said on my location, but really I was in Gainesville, Florida, visiting my fiance. So it's no, it's, you know, it's no big deal. You just say I'm in Gainesville and then some guy drove from Tampa about eight hours later and I peed in a cup. So, you know, obviously no issues, right? So it's no big deal, but it, it, I just want to paint that picture of the, that sort of drug testing is year round. When it comes to street drugs, usually from 420, April 20th, ironically enough, all the way to August or whatever that time was, that's when we would get tested for street drugs. You get tested one time. If you pass one time, you're clear for the year. So that goes to show you that this is a test that was passable before, right? And now it's even more so. So I think it's great in the sense that, yes, if it's going to be used the right way, um, for guys' health, anxiety, whatever that may be. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I don't know those things. It's not my, it's not my deal. Um, but yeah, I think it's great. I wanted to clarify on that as well. So we clarified on Jersey numbers. We clarified on drug testing. There's a little in, a little inside before. So if guys were failing drug tests before in the league, you, 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 you know, you, you had a problem putting it down. Um, you really did because you couldn't just stop for, you know, a month or two weeks before whatever it was before, um, April 20th. Um, so again, 
just a couple of unique things there, Justin. I like that. Yeah. You peel back the curtain. People like this kind of stuff. Like, uh, and one thing, one more thing on that. And we'll, I have one more small topic is, uh, you know, I love the whole like treatment oriented approach they're doing. So like if a player tests positive during training camp, his test is reviewed by like a board of doctors and uh, they're going to look at the league and they're going to come together. And if the, if they cut the, if the board decides that the player needs treatment, yeah, you can keep using it. Cause like, you know, the, there's been opioid abuse. It, there's, like guys get addicted to it. It like ruins their lives. It's, it's terrible stuff. So anything we can do to try to break away from that in professional sports, I'm all here for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You see all these people that are breaking down, talk about concussions, take an opioid or you got a knee problem you keep playing on the opioids, you get addicted to them. It really could truly ruin your life, ruin your family's lives. Um, I listened to a couple of hockey podcasts with guys that were heavily involved in that and how it affects alcoholism and drug abuse along with the opioids. So completely agree, Justin. And, and uh, like I said, I'm interested to see what's going to happen. You know, if it's going to, obviously at some point it's legal in States, it's going to be legal, legal nationwide here at some point. Is it going to go into athletic programs? Is it going to help people with, you know, the anxieties, the stresses, the recovery, whatever it may be, uh, and inflammation, um, is it a cream to rub on your knee because you got a lot of, you know, tendonitis or whatever it may, I don't know those answers, but I do think that's going to be coming in the next X amount of years. And I think it's going to be good and the game will be better because of it. The game will be healthier because of it. Guys will be happier. And, and again, the side effects won't be as strong again, in my novice opinion as an opioid. So I love it. All right. Last up, I'm rocking the, uh, the BYU swag today. Cause it is the week of the NFL draft. My guy, Zach Wilson projected number two pick. Uh, to the New York Jets. Colin, y- you weren't drafted, but you do have a draft story for us. I have a couple. I have, I have a couple. Nothing, nothing too monumental, but some good stuff. But first, though, so I wasn't able to watch a lot of BYU this year. I watched the ECU, no, Coastal Carolina game. Yeah, that wasn't um, great. No, it was not great. But so Zach Wilson, like if you're an NFL franchise, why are you signing him? It, he's Patrick Mahomes light. He could do the baseball style throws to can, contort his body and throw at any arm angle. He can make the, you know, everybody saw his pro day where he's, he's running, was it running right and throwing left or whatever, just the opposite side throw. Um, you know, he, he's got the height. He's got the athleticism. He's a great guy from everything I've read about him. He, he fun fact, he used to drive uh, seven hours home to California every Sunday to uh, have family dinner. And then he would just drive back to Provo. So that I mean, just that's, that that fact alone is just crazy. Uh, I like road trips, but not that seven much. hours. Yeah, every Sunday, every just every for family week. dinner. Yep, just for family dinner, and they drive right back. So seven hours, he'd leave at seven a.m. Probably eight a.m. I don't. It's. I don't know how he. I don't. I like driving, but not that far. Wow, and that's a big time commitment to family dinner. I did it at Temple a lot. I loved it, but I was an hour away. So, yeah, that's a big – I love the commitment to family, and, and that's fantastic. So sign yeah. him. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I, I wish him nothing but the best of luck. I, I was not a first-round pick. I was not a top-five pick by any means. I went on draft with Justin. Um, just so – I figured, you know, we'll talk about a little bit my journey with the draft process. So I went to the pro day. I went my own pro day. I didn't run that great, and but I ran good routes, which was like a big deal because I was like the blocking tight end who can't move, quote-unquote, even though I never was really given the chance in our offense. This wasn't a thing. So – I was going to run some good routes and I started getting these calls. I got to know where we thought I was going to be a mini camp tryout guy, maybe kind of not looking that bright. I had one agent reach out to me and they're my agents now and they represent a bunch of guys in the league. And I'm very, very lucky for it. one agent that truly believed in me, I should say. So 
excuse me. Um, so yeah, so we started feeling these calls and all of a sudden, like I had like 25 teams end up calling me and we didn't have a team talking to us at all for months. I mean, we are literally was very concerned and we're like, pick the right agent, you know, did I do the right move? Did I not do enough? Did I ride them back 40 to kill me. And, um, the agent called me on draft, like the third day of the draft. He's like, I think you may actually get drafted here. Like, this is the crazy, if you get drafted, this will be the highest miracle story. Uh, it's, this is the biggest climb I've ever seen in my life. And we're feeling a bunch of calls in the sixth round. And this, this is a story for a lot of undrafted guys. I'm no different. Every guy's got the same story. I was getting calls. Hey, we may take you here. Hey, we may take you here. But really, they're probably just trying to get you to sign with them undrafted. That's what ends up happening. It becomes a recruiting process at the bottom. So, huh. you know, you get all excited for that team, you know, and then all of a sudden they don't take you. But, hey, we love you anyways. You know, we would have took you if we had another pick, one of those type of deals, you know. So, <laughs> if there's uh, eight rounds, man. Yeah. Yeah, right. If everyone said, ah, there's just one more round. But sometimes it's better to go undrafted um, to give another insight. If you go drafted, you have to play you, – you're on a four-year deal with a fifth-year option. So it's longer to get your second contract. If you are undrafted, you're on a three-year deal with a fourth-year option. So that's a little business side of it. It's a shorter time to get to your second contract. Um, even though I've been, I'm, this is my, this will be my fifth year playing pro, which is crazy to say. This is, that was my first year in the NFL, technically with a credited season. So um, I'll need a couple more years, which is fine by me, man. I'm glad to, I'll stay. I'm very lucky to play where I play and do what I do. I have no complaints on me, but that's just a little business side of what happened. And then, yeah, I went undrafted to the New York Giants. My family was here. My fiance was my girlfriend at the time, obviously awesome we had like 30 40 people in cape may and my parents house just going crazy and spraying champagne everywhere like i was the number one overall <laughs> pick uh but i went undrafted and it was it was just an unreal day a lot of tears ended up going to our local watering hole here and singing and partying and, and having a great time again like i was literally uh the first round pick so that's just a little draft story little ins and outs and, and a little bit of uh, just fact about what's going on in the nfl business wise Glad you clarified the, so last year was your rookie season. Just because you've been on practice squads before that doesn't mean that you have that as service time or whatever. Yep. Yep. So a lot of guys are already onto their, you know, like I think I came in, did I come in with Sam Darnold? I may have come in with Sam Darnold. Uh, I believe so. 2017. 2018. 2017. Is he 18? Okay. So maybe the year before Sam. So I'm just saying Sam, because I saw his numbers today. You know, you can look up all our salaries online. It's all public stuff, but you know, <laughs> it, yeah. So like talking like money that like people get funky, like when I'm out in public and we're, we're having fun now on the pod as we're going to finish things up here and talk about what's next. But like, we talk about money very openly, not money, like how much I made and what I'm spending, but like, yeah, I made X last year because it's right there. You can just Google it. It's no secret. Um, so it's very unique compared to like society who like, doesn't talk about that. Kind of yeah. Mine's stuff. not on the internet. So no, no, mine is no, mine is. And then, then people think you're a millionaire. <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, I worked my entire life to make that one seat one year. And I get that people don't make that their entire life, but I have to make that last my entire life. Um, so, you know, I'm very fortunate and blessed for what I do. I wouldn't trade for the world and, and hope I can do it for a very long time. I'm going to play to the wheels fall off. Like our, our non hall of famer, Julian Allen said, so wait, so is he a hall of famer or not? No, I'm kidding. I'm no, kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> he is in my mind and heart. Cause in my tenure, my 10 years, I got to watch him. And he was unreal for those 10 years. But when you look at the Hall of Fame numbers, he'll be a Ring of Honor member in New England like we talked about, and that's it, which is something to be said. That's not it. That's unreal. That's 1% of the 1% of the 111%. Unbelievable. So, all right, Justin, that's it. All I got. That's awesome, man. It was a fun one today. So, listen, guys, the best of 
Okay. The best of, so we're taking, like I said, five to 10 minute clips from everything. All these podcasts are going to brought to you, be brought to you by K May Brewing Company, Wealth Advisory Services. If you don't know them, you should, and the original Fudge Kitchen. So first, the first episode you're going to hear is going to be about remembering a legend, John Chaney, who was a Temple basketball coach, basketball Hall of Famer, a legend in Philadelphia in college basketball, a trailblazer and a great man. You're going to hear from Kevin Agandi. First, you're going to hear with Harry Donahue, excuse me, who's in the Temple Ring of Honor, Mike Jensen, who writes for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and then Kevin Agandi, who you see him on Center every night. He kills that Temple graduate. That's going to be remembered a legend, John uh, John Cheney, episode one. You're going to hear from those three men. Then you're going to hear from Sean Lathan of $20 Chef, comedian, just chef, great stories. Then you're going to hear from Micah Puchel of Iration, the lead singer of Iration, which is the music of our podcast. Check their music out. He's been generous, gener- generous enough for us to use his music, and, and they're, they're great people over there at Iration and be able to have drinks with them and have a good time with them. They're great guys. So check out Micah Puchel. That's going to be episode three. Episode four, Mitch Perguson. He does custom clothing for a ton of pro ath- athletes, including lower-level guys like myself and upper-level upper guys like Christian McCaffrey, Robert Tunyon, and George Kittle. Uh, he's got some great stories about um, uh, Mark Cuban and, and a bunch of other people that he's worked with. Then we're going to go to Doug Allen. He's a creative entourage, my favorite show, very successful show, very successful movie, great storyteller, big sports fan. Doug Allen, check that out. That's episode five. Then we're going to go to Tyre Whitehead, NFL veteran, someone I played with last year. He's a Temple graduate philanthropist, great man, educator, father. Loved having Tyre on. Thanks, Tyre. And then Trey Burton, episode seven, Super Bowl champion, the Philly special he's known for, but he's a fisherman, great father, great teammate, Florida Gator. Uh, Loved having Trey on. He's a dear friend. And then to go to another dear friend, Ryan Wilson, uh, Winslow, excuse me, Ryan Winslow, uh, current Green Bay Packers punter. Uh, He tells bunch of different stories about his career and being a punter and being up and down and traveling all over the country, just waiting to get a call. And he finally got a nod by the Packers last year, actually, while we were playing in Green Bay, which is pretty cool. And then last but not least, episode nine, Mickey DeMoss, Women's Basketball Hall of Famer. She's a current chief of staff for Georgia Tech, but she really cut her teeth and became a legend when she was Pat Summit's right-hand girl at the University of Tennessee during their heyday. She won a zillion national titles, a WNBA championship. So, that is episode one through nine. This will be episode 10. So we appreciate you guys tuning in. Again, these are all brought to you by Wealth Advisory Services, Kate May Brewing Company, and the Fudge Kitchen. They'll ship fudge to you across the country. So we appreciate you guys' support. That's the first chapter of Not For Low Media coming to an end. So thanks for your guys' support, and I hope you guys enjoy the Best of Podcast. Nothing in the world could ever take this from me. Well, the whole landscape of college basketball when it came to the coaches, when Coach uh, got that job back in 1982, I guess it was, at, from Peter Lee, of course, who was the president at Temple, it was so different than it is today. I mean, everything about the game, marketing-wise, television, conference, but even at his level as a coach, there were only, I want to say, two, three other coaches that were African-American of a national reputation at the time. John Thompson was at Georgetown. Uh, Nolan Richardson was at Arkansas. Uh, George Raveling uh, was out at, I believe, Iowa, maybe Southern California. And then there was John Cheney. And, and everybody in Philadelphia knew John, if you were familiar with basketball. Going back, you know, he was a great high school player in the city. 
unfortunately, he couldn't get a scholarship coming out of Ben Franklin High School on Broad Street. And he had to go down to Bethune-Cookman at the Division II level and play. And he was a native Floridian. So it was like going back home a little bit for him. Then he came up to the city. He coached in junior high. He coached at Simon Gratz and won and won. And then he went to Cheney and he won a national championship. And then Peter Leocoris, who I think among most people who knew what was going on back then, uh, he had a vision for the future. And he got rid of Wayne Harden as the football coach and hired a guy by the name of Bruce Arians, okay, uh, who was 30 years old and the youngest Division I-A coach at the time. And then he hired Don Casey, who went on to coach in the NBA. But he brought in this black coach from Cheney State at the age of 50, John Cheney. People say, what is he doing? You know, well, now as we look back, you know, almost 50 years later, we realized what he was doing. He was changing everything to the betterment of not only the game, but most importantly, to the kids who were going to play the game. So John was a complex person, very much so. Maybe the smartest guy I have ever met in all my years of covering sports. By that, I mean, I don't mean just X's and O's in his profession, but in terms of being well-read and learned, he was, he was the teacher of the year in Pennsylvania. A lot of people don't know this. When he was a junior high teacher at Sarah Junior High School, he was awarded the Teacher of the Year. And he, he said, of all the honors he won, that was the most important honor that he ever received. And he went to the Hall of Fame. Okay? So uh, it's tough to answer, but I, that's a little bit, if you scratch the surface, about the times when he became a coach and what he did over his course of 24 years at Temple and all the hundreds of players, and more importantly, not only at Temple, but around the country that he impacted. And, of course, you know how a lot of black coaches today will say, I was inspired by just reading about Coach Cheney and seeing him. Did he have foibles? Yeah. And who didn't? Okay. And he was on a national stage, and he committed some of those foibles. I'm talking about the Calipari thing and everything else. But he, he made up the coach, Calipari. They became good friends. And John would be the first one to say, I'll tell you a story. He said one time after the Calipari game, he had a bus home from Amherst. Gets home late at night to his house in Mount Airy. And you know where Mount Airy is. And he's lived there all his life. And there was nobody home. He's looking for his wife. Gene, Gene, where are you? Calls his daughter and says, where's your mother? And his daughter says, she's over here with me, and she's not coming home tonight to be with you. You made a fool of yourself today. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said, and I'm not coming over either. So he realized he made a mistake, but that was John, you know, and uh, you took the good with the bad. You said he was well-read. Is there a particular conversation that you had with him? on the plane rides, on the buses, at the pregame meal, night before, whatever it may be, having a breaking bread, that was just out of the norm. We weren't talking basketball. We're not talking – we're talking politics. We're talking whatever that may be. Can you, can you speak on any of those interactions with him? Well, not maybe a specific one, but it was often. Because you would, you would ask John a question, and maybe it was basketball-related, obviously – and the next thing you know, he's talking about the big picture and how it goes beyond just basketball. It, it's in everyday life. 
And he used to have practice. Everybody says, you know, 5.30 practices. And he'd get there. Players had to be there ahead of time, 5 o'clock. And then when he walked in, there were some days where he wouldn't even practice basketball. He would just have them sit on the floor at half court. And he would talk to them about some, some issue that's going on in the world. And he called it his life lessons, you know. So to say there, there was one, there were a thousand times. And, and you would, I can remember going to practice one day and, and having an arranged interview. And we, we used to do a show, a uh, coach's show weekly. And I would ask them a question. And like literally a half an hour later, I didn't have time to jump in for a follow-up question because he was still talking and answering the first question. He would just rumble on. And we'll go to uh, break. Or ramble on. <laughs> yeah. So, but he was, um, you could ask him about anything. You could ask him. He told me one time, he said, uh, how do you look at a, a kid and, and determine whether he's a good athlete or not? I said, well, you know, it's basketball. How's he score? How's he rebound? No, 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 no. He said, watch him run. He said, I don't care what sport. Watch him run. He said, you, you saw Jackie Robinson? Now, I'm old enough to have seen Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was a great football player at UCLA. He uh, ran track. And, of course, baseball was the sport. But he said, he's pigeon-toed. All good athletes are pigeon-toed. Now, I don't know. Did Coach, did he have, like, data to back that up? Uh, it's pretty tough, right? But I, you know what I started doing, Common? I started watching kids as they ran and see whether they're pigeon-toed or not. Because John Chaney told me, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know what? Most of the good ones, they're pigeon toed. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the good ones, I'll say that they're a little quirky in their way. Or, you know, you'll talk to a strength coach and they'll say, oh, his hips are tight. I'm like, well, you know, he's like the best athlete on the team. So, like, uh, you know, maybe. Okay. The next time you're at practice at a high level with a lot of high level athletes, check them out. Yeah. See when they run those sprints or patterns. See how many of them are pigeon-toed. I oh, ask them, are you pigeon-toed? <laughs> John Cheney says, that's why you're a good athlete. <laughs> I'm going to say, man, Colin, we always thought you were a little weird, but not this weird. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, tell, them somebody, tell them somebody else clued you in on it. <laughs> the Hall of Famer clued me in. That's right. Of John Cheney. But I'll start here. Was there something – you know, I'm sure there's a hundred stories you got that you're like, wow, I didn't know that. Wow, I didn't know that. But is there one that was special that hit you that you're now telling your friends about or your family about like, wow, this is a really cool story? It, it's, I mean, yeah, his whole life to, and, and I started covering him at the end. So his life had been written about. I mean, right after he went up after John Calipari, suddenly Gary Smith had clearly been working on this story about the life of John Cheney. And, and there it was. Uh, the life of John Cheney in, in Sports Illustrated that is like cinematic uh, of, of, I mean, because again, you're talking about, um, uh, I mean, this got very personal, that story, but, but you're talking about a guy who was uh, publicly player of the year in Philadelphia, uh, who was recruited by exactly zero big five schools. It went, went to Bethune-Cookman, right? Uh, you're talking about a guy who was good enough to be the MVP of the Eastern League, which was the second best league in the world at the time, uh, but couldn't play in the NBA because there were racial quotas at, at, at the time. You think about, can you imagine not being able to be, no, we don't need you to be our seventh or eighth man because we're going to take this, this other guy and you do this other path. So, you know, how he transferred that and 
went into coaching and teaching uh, Sayer Junior High, uh, Simon Gratz High School, Cheney University. Uh, and, and then, I mean, the stories, I mean, then to turn out to be the funniest person you ever met. Uh, so so the, the stories, I mean, you'd, you saw the rage come out at times. Uh, but, he, you know, how he said things, and in some, some of it was just, you know, blind man ain't got no business at the circus. I mean, he was just kind of a street poet in addition to be a street philosopher. So, you know, I mean, the memories sometimes are like once a year, uh, Dayton Marriott, instead of holing up in his room, he'd come down to the bar after the game. And I can remember one year being there and he's spinning stories for like two hours. Everybody's laughing. And you don't even realize there's two guys at the next table who were just, you know, staying at the hotel. They didn't say a word. They never said a word. Then all of a sudden there's one guy slapping the table because he's laughing so hard. And you didn't even know he was, he was there just because John was, John was being John. So there were a lot of sort of, misnomers about John being John because covering John, I always said he gave you full access to his brain. Uh, and, and, I, and I wrote the story that I sort of had a working theory that basically anytime you thought John was crazy, he showed you that he knew exactly what he was doing. But anytime you thought he knows exactly what he's doing, he showed you he was crazy. So yeah, there, there couldn't be a better guy to cover. And, and I had, I was blessed. I mean, I covered the, the Matt Rule era of, of, of Temple football writing columns. I, you know, they throw us all into Eagles, Super Bowl, Phillies, World Series runs, covered Villanova, covered Smarty Jones, um, Barbara horse racing, you know, epic saga is the highlight of my career is covering this man. Coach Cheney is and why this is a big deal. And so the next day I bring in the dishes and uh, I drop it off and I just, I don't think anything of it. You know, she made four dishes and um, some of the bread. And again, it was all hundred percent authentic. So I go to class and this is like mid nineties before beepers, before cell phones. I mean, if you had a beeper, you were the cool kid that would go to the payphone, right? And uh, I, I, so, you know, it, it's hard to get in touch with anybody uh, until you're done class. So I'm doing my whole thing and I get back to the temple news and my, my phone is blinking nonstop. And there are all these post-it notes everywhere of messages. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And it was the basketball office and, um, the basketball manager, Chris, uh, had, had been just calling me all day looking for me. And, and it was just like, call me back, call me back, call me back. And so I, you know, call him up. I'm like, what the hell's going on? He's like, get over to the basketball office coaches. This is the only thing I had to do all day. I had to find you. I had to go to all your classes and look for you. Please come to the office. And I'm like, what, what the hell's going on? So I go to the basketball office and Chris is just like, coach loved your food. He loved what your mom did. He wrote her a letter. Here it is. And he has all this swag, but it's not for you. It's for her. And I was like, are you kidding me? And he's like, yes, this is the only thing I had to do all day. And coach was on my ass about it. And uh, so I brought it home and, and, and you know, I, I, my mom was just beyond thrilled. She got a letter from Coach Cheney personally 
uh, talking about the food. And then the next time I saw him, you know, we talked about what he liked, what he didn't like. And he was just like, I, this, this part of it. And I was like, ah, but you got to put that in the oven. That's the difference from putting it in the microwave. And he was just like, okay. Uh, he loved the food. And um, after that, for the next three years, anytime I saw him, you know, come on in. And any conversations we had, it was, he was always open. The door was always open. And, you know, in the last week, you know, Colin, I've heard so many other similar stories where his door was always open and the conversations were intended to uh, go one direction. And suddenly three hours later, uh, you, you walk out of there and you just like, what just happened? And that's what coach was. Coach was all about um, learning about who you were and, and, and how he could help you, but at the same time, share the experiences with you. And, and, and honestly, like Colin, I, I, I just go back to so, so, so many questions that I had as I was learning my way in this field and navigating as, as a college kid yet at the same time, you know, Duke's in town or, you know, Kansas or UNLV and, and, you know, you're in these press conferences and you look back and you're like, that, that was probably a dumb question by me. And coach, coach never was there to just kind of make you look back. Coach was there to explain like life at the same time, explain, you know, why what you asked him was a little bit different from what actually happened. And uh, there are many coaches, I think, uh, that we've seen uh, through the years that, that don't handle that really well. And so I'm forever grateful for his grace and um, and his openness to just say, this is a college kid. Uh, I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to look after him. But at the same time, I'm going to tell him the truth with everything. It's amazing, these stories. It's amazing how open he was with things now that you would say, where are you from? No, I don't want to know Phoenixville. I don't want to know a suburb of Philadelphia. I want to know where your family's from. Yeah. I want to know. I mean, how important I've talked about that. You've done so many pieces on ESPN now about social injustice and acceptance. And I said it before, it's a responsibility now as an athlete more than ever to be, to educate yourself or at least be able to articulate your thoughts on this. And I'm working the hard as I can talking to so many players in the locker room, but how important would he be in today's society? Having those conversations, Harry Donnie said, he's so worldly. Like he just had, an unbelievable mind about what was going on in the world. Certain practices you would come in that guys would sit down for two hours, a ball wouldn't even go on the floor. They wouldn't even run. They'd learn about the world. How important would he be in today's world, educating players? Colin, you know, that's a great observation. And, and thanks for relaying what Harry's saying, because it's a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. You know, at the time in the mid eighties, uh, there were no there were no blackhead coaches that were giants, and it, it was just John Thompson and John Chaney. And then you see the Nolan Richardsons of the world, who you know gained that fame in in the nineties uh, because of Arkansas. But it was John and John who opened the doors. I think on the national level, right? Um, they saved they saved these kids' lives. Kids that came from nowhere and, and honestly, and not only gave them an education, but the experience of life outside of where they were and the belief of hope. And that's what I think everybody that, that, that had the chance to be touched by John saw. You know, we live in a world right now where it's my social media. It's my branding. It's my message. This is my experience. And no one's asking about your experience and, and your thoughts and or putting things to the side and saying, I want to understand what it looks like from your perspective. 
And you can say that that has affected us in many layers. For John to say, uh, where are you from? And want to know about my parents' experience. He didn't have to do that. Just show, and, and it extends to your, your comment about being worldly. It extends to what you're doing inside the locker room. You're trying to gain a perspective that, granted, you weren't born with, but you want to better understand, right? And, and for me, it was always relatable. I, I was very lucky. I grew up in a, in a household where it was like we have Eastern values and I walk out and I have Western values and I come home and I try to figure out how to make that work with my parents. But at the same time, my parents were fully aware that I was going out in a Western value world coming home and they were telling me about Eastern values. So they always understood it's compromised. It's, it's not this is how it is and it doesn't matter. It's this is why we do it. And this is what makes sense to us. And I carry that with me. Uh, in every conversation I had with somebody that looked different from me, where it was just like, this is what they know. It's not that whether it's right or wrong, it's just what they know. And it's my, it's my opportunity to kind of educate what it's like from my perspective and, and ask the right questions. The questions that I wish people asked me. And John asked those questions where he didn't have to. Um, so I, I think that I, go, I come back to another thing. It's this common bond that I think John saw in many many, many college kids in North Philadelphia. We were all underdogs. Uh, you experience that right now, what you do on the NFL level, but you experience that in college. We are underdogs everywhere we go. And, and I think uh, Temple, North Philadelphia, and Philadelphia as a whole has always identified that with John, that John is kind of like our piece. He is part of our family where he's the underdog who made it. And at the same time, who's never forgotten about us. And he's always stayed true to who he is. And, and I think that you, you carry that. I try to carry that on the air. You carry that on the field that no matter where our road takes us, we're fully aware of where we've, we've come from. And that, is never, that never escaped John. And I think that nowadays that, that kind of uh, messaging needs to be sent out everywhere to everybody where you can, you can live in the moment, but also don't forget what got you to the moment. And don't forget that the perspective that you have is different from somebody else's perspective. And that if you ask the right questions, you can learn from that perspective and be a better person overall. It's another level of electricity when he goes out. Like we, he'll like one time, I mean, real quick to finish. And then whatever we did, like it was time to podcast or if he, like he wanted the idea, we would exhaust every possible option. And then anybody we knew that they might, that we didn't know that somebody we knew might know, like whatever it took, we were on a mission for whatever it is what we were doing. And it happened. That's how all the podcast started. And then, uh, uh, again though, but the partying aspect also, he would, then he, for most of the time I was with him when we were uh, early on, it was, he was single and I, and I was single for a little, then I had a girl, then I was single again, but he'd be like, one time he called the penguins were playing Tampa Bay in the conference finals before one of the years they won it, maybe seven, I think 2016 when they won it all. And, uh, he just called, he just gives us, he sends out a group text. Hey, were you guys free tonight? And we're like, yeah, what's up, Pat? And he goes, uh, we'll come on over about four o'clock. The jet leaves at five 30. We're going to Orlando or whatever the fuck Tampa to watch the lightning. I got a box. We're going to watch the lightning Pittsburgh game tonight. And it was one of the most electric nights of my life. We get in, we go to his house, we get in a fucking Suburban, we head to the, the, the little airport, jump on a private jet, go to Tampa, 
He has a Vans waiting for us. We get the Vans to the place, escorted through. Just have the fucking electric night. Penguins winning, double OT. Right back. I mean, he's done that. He did that three or four different times where he just got a jet. and We all went somewhere and just partied. And then in Pittsburgh, the next, we went to Pittsburgh one time. And he's in there. He goes to the bartender. He goes, listen, here. He's giving him a few hundred bucks or something. And he goes, anybody who's physically touching the bar right now, the place was packed. I buy him a shot. Just line up. You know what? Just put out a hundred shots ready to go right now. By the end of this bar, I was walking around with a bottle of fireball. Like no bar lets you do that. No bar gives you a bottle as a customer. I'm walking around just pouring fireball in people's mouths. I'm standing on the bar, pouring it in people's mouths. I was bartending at the upstairs bar. My buddy, Bobby, the money guy was with us. He's wearing a fucking penguin outfit, walking around with a bottle. Pat's buying the bar up. The, I, he might have even walked out without a shirt on. I mean, the next day he gets a boat and he turns the casino boat. And then it, with real money on the line, like, okay, it was a play casino, right? Play money. But whoever won, had the most chips at the end, Pat was like, I'll give you two grand, whoever has the most money at the end of this. I mean, the shit was just a whirlwind of electricity. We'll get, we're going to the end. We're going to the race in Detroit. I got a plane. Let's go. Next thing you know, we're at fucking Hard Rock. Everybody's playing craps, winning thousands, bro. Yeah, he's an electric guy. Whether it's business or pleasure, it's electric. And it's just, it's all, it's 100% consuming. That's why that dude is a rocket ship. And then you just get caught up, right? And you get sucked in and you're on. For, and it's a great ride. And it's a fucking great time. The guy's electric. And I, 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 he's just good at everything. Like, Another level of human. Like, doesn't matter what he's doing, he's going to excel at it. If he puts, there's just something in him. I mean, even he fucking he throws a football faster and harder than anybody I've ever felt, and he's a putter. This thing has just exploded to another level, and like, I don't know if it's the entertainer in me that always wants to be better and more and more. Like, I'm still not nowhere happy with where it is, and I want it to go larger. But you know, that's just how it is, I guess. When you want to always, you're always motivated to keep moving. And never happy. Like I'm content. I'm happy with the product, but I'm not. Ha- I'm not happy with where it's at. But just having like so much fun and having a producer for that long a time, like a soldier that's going to film and edit everything, like doing a demolition derby. Like I've done so much shit that was just so outlandish. Um, you know, smoking ribs and then doing a demolition derby and almost dying. Like uh, the show. I, I, the main thing I always preach to people is that i'm not an expert so if i fuck up just don't do what i do i've never cooked at a restaurant when i first started this idea pat said all right we were at his birthday dinner maybe his mother's birthday dinner uh at at sullivan's in, in indy and uh the owner started talking with the manager right the gm and you know got our own little private room and we we're talking and pat was like hey what about if because at first he was like i'm gonna send you to culinary school that way you know your shit and i was like i guess i'm dropping everything and going to culinary school like that's how your mindset is when you work for Pat, right? And then he was like, all right, no, no, that's too much. So he got me a job working in the kitchen for free at Sullivan. So I got a job, like three, I worked, I lived right next door to it. So for like four days, three days a week, I'd just go show up at noon, put on an apron and be like, what do you want me to do? And the chefs, and they all were like cool about it. And I basically did all the shit that the lowest guys on a totem pole were happy to give me to do. So you learn. But yeah, but I learned, I was learning and, um, you know, I did that for about three or four months. I just had this job that I didn't get paid at just to get in the kitchen and work. And then we started filming and 
the main thing I always try to say is, look, I am not an expert. I'm just a dude who likes to cook. If you want to learn from an expert, the internet has a million of them. Go look at Gordon Ramsay, Aron Sanchez. I mean, there's literally a million amazing, classically trained to, uh, you know, all levels of training and experience. Go watch Anthony Bourdain videos. Um, but I'm not that right. Like I just and, like but you offer a whole other thing. You're <laughs> like Barstool is. That's what marks Barstool great is. It's unfiltered. It's authentic. Here's who I am, and they bring in those people that feel the same way. Like, yeah, that's Barstool, but people Barstool is great, great logo, great theme, but it's the people that make it up that make it special. You've been in and out of the company. I watch Food Network. I watch Triple D. I love Guy. I watch you know uh, all the different shows, and I love food. I love the social aspect of it. I love eating it. But what makes your show special is it's authentic. Can you say that? Like I'm chopping onions. Well, hopefully I don't chop my finger off here. You know, I'm, I'm crying. I'm, I'm taking shots. You're, 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 you're just yourself. Anybody who doesn't watch it, I encourage you to follow. But nonetheless, is there an experience that happened on that show that, that molds you who you are today? Um, what I like about the show is that the, my favorite part is doing the material, the stand up material. Like I, that's basically my workshop now for stand up. But now the, what the show's done for me, it has made me a much better person in the kitchen. Like beforehand, I needed a recipe. Like I needed a recipe. Like I just didn't have it all in my brain to be like, oh, here's what I'll make, you know? And even now I'm a stoner, so I don't retain everything. I've made, you know, I've done 400 episodes, but I can't remember all that shit, you know? But if I go to a refrigerator and a freezer and I can see what I got, I don't need to look. I, I go, oh, I could do this. Oh, I got that. I got that. I start grabbing shit out and I can make something. So what it has done, it has made me definitely a better cook. Like without, I've, it's you know, a cook is a person that follows recipes. A chef is a person that creates recipes, basically. And uh, I'm more chefish. Still, I'm still dog shit compared to any real chefs. But I'm saying on my own scale, yeah, I'm way more chefish than I am cookish because of doing that show so much and having to do so much research and try to keep it fresh. And I can never just like send it in because. You know, I can't, I'm doing, I have to do eight episodes a month. So I need all the material for that. I need all the different recipes for that. I need to be able to also make sure that it's nothing similar. I can't do the three episodes that are similar. You have to, you know, keep on changing it up. And, uh, but the main part I love is just being able to just spout off shit from my life, you know, like life stuff, uh, relationship stuff, growing pain stuff, uh, ups and down stuff, emotional things. Or whatever, if it's and a lot of it, but my favorite part definitely is working in all of the material because I know if people start quoting it in the comments that it can work on stage. That's kind of like what I'll do. And this year alone, I've done a ton that I can't, and I haven't done any stand up. I've written a lot though. You know, I did eighty episodes this year, I think, before I stopped with Barstool, and uh, and just but the material, I was like the COVID kind of because I'm not a, I don't know, the, the hustle bustle of barstool life and every, all the real, you know, all of the politicking and all of the who likes who and who don't like who in the office. It was very, I, I was the only thing that turned me off. Cause I was like, I wasn't really part of any clicks and I wasn't partying with them and I'm, I'm older than most of them. So it just kind of like me being able to have the freedom to have a producer editor and then just not being around anybody, just do my own thing somehow also helps. Um, to like kind of refresh, get back to the early stages of this show. Um, and 
but the main part I really loved was just getting out, being outside, like having my own set. I built this cool little butcher block and, you know, that brought, you know, being outside guys also brought out this like want to be outdoors guy. I got a truck now, four by four truck, and I got a grill in the back of it chained in. Like I have a grill that goes with me everywhere, a little fire grill, you know. Um, I got a box. I got this outdoor box that like has everything I could possibly need for outdoor chefing. And I got my butcher block and, and my knives and I'm ready, bro. Like I'm just this guy, like this like nomad mentality that I've had, but now I'm grounded with a family, but I still have this nomad into me. Like I, I'm like, all right, well I can just go right now in my truck. It doesn't matter. I can go anywhere. I can film anywhere. I can do whatever I want. And then I can put it up and it's going to be authentic because it's what I want to do. Not what I have to do. Spotify, Pandora. How has that changed the game in the music industry? I mean, I know there's a lot. I know it has a lot. I've read some articles on it, but maybe in layman's terms, for myself and our listeners, how's it changed? So, just the the most basic way of thinking about it is, you know, right before we basically got to the music industry, so we hit it at the pretty much the worst possible timing, which was right after Napster took over before that it was, I mean, it's, it's good. There's some, so there's some good, good sides and there's some bad sides to it. So early days, the music industry is controlled by radio. It's controlled by major, major labels, right? There's like five major labels that are controlling all the art, the artists, they're feeding all that music directly to the radio stations. So the radio stations are then playing those music. Those, those artists get big. That's how people discover music. There was no internet. There was no Spotify. There was no, no YouTube. So the, you're finding the music through TV, through movie, movies, through soundtracks, through MTV, through radio. That's how you're hearing new music, right? So, And the major labels were in cahoots with radio stations. So they're just feeding them acts and be like, here's a new act. You're going to play this. They go, okay, money, you know, it's all this, it's politics, right? Yeah. The, the internet. So, and then they sell CDs, which cost 10 cents to make, and they sell them for $15.99. So you can imagine in the market, you sell a million CDs, you know, think about how much money you're making, right? So it was a giant scheme. It was a giant, the, the money was huge. The, the, the acts that were out were making so much money. If you had a hit in those days, you were a millionaire, you know, you're making all this money. It's fat. Everyone's fat off the business, right? And then Napster hits, and all of a sudden now it's like, you can't sell it anymore. Now, now there is no selling music nobody buys music anymore it's all about subscriptions it's all about streams now what what that does do and youtube opens the door to a lot of artists that don't have major label backing right independent artists so acts like us acts like revolution acts like you know these these acts that didn't never were on a label um we had major labels that were interested in us but the deals we just never wanted to sign away our our music or Steinway, you know, do these, these deals where they take all the product, they take, you take your publishing, they take all that stuff. We just never wanted to do that. We always stayed independent. And uh, the one good thing is that, yeah, it opens the door for acts that are smaller to kind of like get out there. Oh, I've discovered this act on YouTube. Now I discovered this act through my discover weekly on Spotify or Apple music or whatever. And that's cool. So, you know, you can have these, these acts that go viral or they, these acts that come out of nowhere and that you discover these talents of people that are, you would never have seen otherwise. But at the same time, it's really hard to, to make music off or to make money off of music, right? Like just from the actual creation of music, it's very hard to make a 
the same amount of money. Like music has been devalued more than any other art form in the world. You know, you think about a painting, you think about a film, you think about uh, a TV show, you think about just any other sort of art, right. That's out there. It's just so much more valuable the, that one piece, that piece of art or that, you know, a photograph or anything. It's just, it's, you can't, it's, if you try to steal someone's photograph or someone's film, it's, you're going to get sued. And it's like in music, it's just like, it's so easy to do. You know, it just became this thing where it's, it's almost normal now. And like people get pissed if you can't just have the, mu the music for free, you know? And so, yeah, it went from making, you know, 1599 CD on a 10 cents, 10 cent price to now we're getting a fraction of a penny per stream. So, you know, we stream a hundred million times, you know, you're making a few thousand bucks. It's not, it's not much. And it's, it used to be well, everybody listening, turn your volume down, plug your phone in and all night long, just play. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put Spotify on the, on the laptop. <laughs> um, I'm going to ring it through. There was a band that they, when they, they did something like that, where it was like, they were trying to, trying to like screw the metric up where they, it was this band in Europe and they, they basically took their, their phones and they just had their, they had it like their stream running their like 24 hours a day. And they had it on like all these different things. And they just had like dedicated things to just streaming the songs over and over and over again, just because they figured out that the, they, they can make, make more money by doing that from their streams. You know what I mean? Than the subscription they were paying. So they were just like, streaming their own music and getting paid for it and they of course they figured that out real quick spotify and all the and, and uh -huh. so figured it out so yeah that's that's the music industry now it, it's you make we make money off of live performances we make money off of selling selling tickets so it is a big a big thing for us is having to be able to, to, to tour and not having that chunk of our our income has been tough but you know we're one of the lucky bands that can survive but it's uh you know, it's also just hard because it's like, imagine if you were doing all the other stuff for to, and not being able to play the games in football, you know, you're, you're lifting, you're, you're training, you're doing all these things and you, and then you don't get to play for two years or a year and a half. It's like, you know, it starts to become a real bummer. It does. It really does. It's a great comparison. What is this going to do to the industry moving forward? I'm sure it's been a topic you guys have talked about a bunch. It's been a topic of, you know, you're a lot of people like yourself, I raced maybe 15 years ago wouldn't have made it through this, right? I mean, talk about what's going to do for the industry moving forward. Listen, I raced five years ago, four years ago, maybe not, wouldn't have made it through this. You know, we, I mean, we, we would have made it, but we would have probably been, I would have been doing something else for this whole time. You know what I mean? And I'm yeah. lucky enough where we can, you know, I can, I, I'm able to, to work on the music and not, and still get paid and not, you know, we, we did a good, we had good financial managers and stuff like that. So we were, we're ready in case something happened. Um, we didn't expect a pandemic. Obviously we were thinking more like one of the guys breaks their, breaks their arm or something snowboarding or, you know, cause we yeah. have a bunch of guys that are surfers and snowboarders and like, Oh, one of these guys is going to hurt themselves eventually. And we are going to have to miss a summer or something like that. And so we were more pre prepared for that kind of deal. And so, yeah, I think one of, the, one of the good things in this is in the beginning is it it, it forces everybody to be innovative and, and change the way that they think about the business and think about the way that they're interacting with their fans. I think that's a huge thing for us. And, you know, we we try to be on the forefront of all of that. And we, you know, we started doing Twitch streaming. We started doing, uh, we, we started a Discord channel, which is 
just we're trying to build communities in places where they don't, people don't necessarily have to go onto social media sites to interact, interact and be a part of it. You know, I know a lot of people are trying to move up, move away from Facebook and, and just socials in general, um, just because of how toxic it gets and how you get the addiction level of, you know, Instagram and all that stuff. It's tough. If you watch the social dilemma, I think, you know, and, and uh, I'm avoiding it. On yeah, purpose. it's hard. It's hard to, hard to reconcile. And he grows on. Yeah. Quick story, and then I'll let you go for me. Uh, it's not as funny. It's not that entertaining, but Mark Cuban came to speak at Florida. And this was freshman year, 2012. Me and my buddy Fitz went over. There's nobody there. The place was half full. Yeah. And it was a solid-sized, you know, amphitheater, right? Two levels and, I don't know, two rows in the middle that go up to the, you know, to the main area and then two on the side. Like, it was decent size. It was half full for Mark. But Mark was great. He put his email up on uh, the projecting screen and he just said, Hey, listen, if you have a good idea, shoot me an email. I'll read it tonight on the plane back. And if the first two lines are good, I'll keep reading. I was like, wow. And at the end, he's like, I bet half of you didn't even write that down or half of you will never email me. So he's probably right. Maybe more 99% probably didn't even email him, but that's the Mark Cuban story. Also, Sydney, my fiance, played women's across. Shout out Florida women's across. He went to Cantina, RIP, bar that died in Gainesville. Not died in Gainesville, <laughs> but went out of business in Gainesville, place yeah. that we love and frequently uh, visited, I should say. And he went there and like closed the bar and bought everyone drinks and showed up in a limo and party with Florida women's across all night. Sydney was in there, but yeah, Mark Cuban uh, seems like a cool guy and got after it and had a great time. He's got some great stories about being in Indiana and how he started a new business and you know, started as like a kind of a grinder blue collar guy ended up being obviously extremely wealthy man owner of the Maverick. So shark tank known. So he's a badass dude. Uh, not to up your story, but you know, he oh. was my first, you know, he's my first boss. Really? See up my story. Go ahead. This is what the podcast is all about. Let's hear this story. This is so great. This is pretty, this is pretty funny. So college, same thing, shark tank addicted entrepreneur. I was, I was my major and all that stuff. And back to the hustle juice. So I was drinking some hustle juice, studying for an exam pretty wired, pretty into it. And, uh, just watched an episode of shark tank. And it's funny. You mentioned his email. So I was one of the kids that emailed him and I was like, you know, this is, this is why not? You know, I said, I got nothing to lose. And I guess the best quote saying in life is why not, you know, you might as well try. So I, uh, I found his Mavericks email online. I sent him an email. And I was just like, Hey, and I was like, how do I make this, you know, kind of something that's different. I can't just say I have a business idea or that whatever, you know, I was like, I got to think of something. And so sophomore Mitch, 20 year old Mitch, you know, thinks it'd be a great idea to have the subject line is you are a stud. So that was the subject of my email. It just said, you are a stud. And I sent this ridiculous email, just tell him how big of a study was. And at the time he had just gotten like away from the sec for insider trading, but he had spent more on the lawyers than the actual fine itself just to stick it to the SEC. He could have, you know, gotten the slap on the wrist, paid the fine. He spent 10 times as much on the lawyers just to stick it to him. And I love that. And so uh, basically uh, <laughs> sent him that email. And like three days later, you know, I didn't get anything. I was just studying in the library again. I got, a, I looked at my phone and it said, RE, Mark Cuban. He responded. And it was like, thanks for the email, LOL. I have a new app. You know, let me know what, here's, here's the link. 
let me know what App State student think of it. So here I am just reading it. I'm like looking around, like thinking, you know, one of my friends is playing a joke on me because I told like three friends I'd send them an email. And, uh, you know, I look at it and I was like, what am I doing? And I respond to him. I was like, is this really Mark? Like, that was my first question. It was hilarious. And his immediate response for him, yep. And then I was just like, you know, I got some questions that I got to ask you. <laughs> Life, what books did I read? Yada, yada, yada. So he started responding. He's like, you know, I read, um, I think it was Good to Great, um, Zero to One. Like, all these books, just like business books. And then I was like, what am I doing again? I was like, give me an internship. Let me work for you. He's like, let's see how you do with CyberDust, which was the app. It's called Dust Now. It's like Snapchat meets WhatsApp. And I was all right. And so I basically downloaded the app, created this position for myself called, you know, head of engagement for App State CyberDust. There was no position. He did not hire me as that. And I just started telling people about the app, getting people on the app. And if you look at apps, there's, you know, you can see where people are downloading it, App State. So I got like 500 of my friends that I knew at app in high school and middle school and elementary school and all that. And I said, Hey, download this app and write my name in a review on iTunes, the, the Apple store, write my name and you know, the review. I want him to know I'm hustling and that I'm doing this because I want to work for him and that he sees everything. And so literally I got 500 reviews on the Apple store of like Mitch Ferguson told me about this app. Love it. Yada, 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 whatever. So then he emails me and he's like, I see what you're doing. Make sure you tell people it's not just about the downloads or the reviews, but you know what the app's for. And I was like, yeah, but I got your attention. That's 500 downloads like, like, like that. He was like, yeah, keep going. He said, you can consider yourself an intern. You know, let's see what you continue to do. Long story short, I was doing another hustle at the time and kept hustling in that created the same position, like five other schools. Three months later, uh, I get an email from his right-hand guy and says, hey, Mitch, you know, we want to fly you up to New York. Uh, we're putting on the Steve Nash Celebrity Soccer Tournament. We want you to be the face of Cyberdust while you're there, uh, interact with athletes, get them on the app, go to the tournament, and then, you know, just, yeah, you're our guy. So I went from basically at the time driving like a truck, you know, delivering books to schools to going to New York City I'd never been before. And uh, this is a long story, but probably the funniest part of the story. Uh, great time, like great experience was there for a while. After the, the celebrity soccer tournament, Steve had all these people at uh, Cipriani's Wall Street. And, you know, as the owner of the owner of Cipriani's, if you've ever been, you know, Wall Street, Cipriani's really nice Italian restaurant, great view, huge columns. You get to see the city, the whole street, all Wall Street. It's a huge, you know, great spot. So Dirk Nowitzki's there. Steve Nash is there. Lloyd Pierce, you know, the guy from Atlanta Hawks is there. All these athletes are there. All these models are there. And I'm like this 20-year-old, you know, 21-year-old, you know, guy just like, where the heck am I? And I'd never been in New York before. I'd also never had Manhattan before. The guy that worked for Mark at the time was this guy named Omar. And he was kind of my like boss while I was in New York. And he loved messing with me. I was basically his pledge. Um, you know, the easiest way to describe it. So he kept feeding me Manhattans all night. And he told me, it's probably the funniest part of the story. He goes, Mitch, uh, you know, you've worked hard, you know, on, you know, being here and we've, we've liked what you've done and interacted with everybody, but I do have something for you. I was like, Oh God. 
He said, I want you to go up to the DJ, you know, it's people drinking, having fun, and then just random me and tell him to put on Fancy by Iggy Azalea. And I want you to dance by yourself in front of everyone here to Fancy by Iggy Azalea. And I was just like, dude, there's no way. Like, if, if I do that, like, you're going to tell Mark I'm an idiot and I'll, you know, I'll get fired and I'll, I'll never, you know, I'll never get invited to something like this again. He's like, or if you don't do it, I'll tell him the same thing. And so I just sat there and I was like, oh, my God. And so I looked at his buddy. He's a good friend of mine in the fashion industry now. His name's Chris. And I looked at Chris. and I was like, is Omar legit? And Chris, like, it's only one way to find out, man. Chris was just laughing because he knows, like, my head is like, you know, well, what am I about to do? So I was like, all right, screw it. So I go up to the DJ. I was like, hey, man, Omar says to put on Fancy by Azalea. Puts it on. I dance by myself for three minutes straight, four minutes straight, however long the song was. At the end of the song, there's like this dead silence, deadpan silence. And like Dirk, his wife, like everyone's just looking at me, Steve. And they're just like, and then all of a sudden they go, yeah. And they just like screamed and were like hyping me up. And they're like, that was awesome. And I don't want, I don't know what I was doing. I was just dancing like an idiot. And the rest of the night, like I had the owner of Chipriani's like, give me a cigar, let it for me. He's like, that was hilarious. Like that was so dope. And like all these dudes, the rest of the night were like, dude, you're the man. And, and, and it was just like this hilarious experience of just like, I was so scared. It was so dumb. It was pretty funny. Omar was making me do that. And it turned the night around for me. I made really good business contacts the rest of the night. And uh, yeah, it's probably my funniest story of just like something random that I have no idea what or why it happened, but it did. And yeah, pretty funny. You know what, I, whenever anyone asks me that, I don't, you know, looking back at the show now with the podcast, I watch them. I really don't besides it. But the things that stand out to me are the memories of the shooting of it. You know, being in Mark Deshera, who's, you know, Yankee first baseman, should be Hall of Famer, but whatever. But um, <laughs> he got us Yankee Stadium. And I had my son and my daughter and my father and... 50 of my best friends from childhood in Yankee stadium filming, you know, the U2 concert on my birthday, we got Bono saying happy birthday to Johnny drama, you know, in Spanish, in Spanish, which he didn't, we didn't know he was going to do in Spanish. And it's almost um, better that way, Doug, everything about it, it was magical and perfect. And then Tom Brady just coming on, like, by the way, with three Super Bowl rings, when I'm like, we got the goat on this show, three at the time. And, now and to play golf, like a real public. I mean, he wasn't stiff. He was great. But I'm saying like he was just kind of, you know, hanging out. Like, what was he like on set? Not to go off the, off the Honestly, rails. this is not, you know, he's the type of he carries himself like everybody should. You know, there were no agents. There was no surrounding people. You know, his call time was ridiculously early, which we usually try not to do with with star cameos. But he had a lot of stuff to do. But he was there at 7 a.m. It was freezing on the golf course. Uh, you know, it sounds like a fake story, but got out. No stretching, no practice swings, grabbed a club and from like 250, you know, on a, on a par three, just put it like a foot from the hole. And, you know, he was always... Uh, he was a fan of the show and he was always great 
and after five minutes, you kind of feel like he's just one of the guys as opposed to like, okay, we got this big star with us. And that's, I, I'm guessing that's what works in the locker room for him as well. You know, he's just a, a regular guy who happens to be great at what he does, you know. But on the golf course, you captured all of the good stuff. And then E goes with a different group and Turtle's miserable. And, you know, uh, tell uh, uh, Jamie Lynn's calling Turtle. How do you come up with all this stuff, Doug? I know that's a very blanket question, but that you – know that podcast was fantastic. That episode was fantastic. I don't even know. You know, I mean, sometimes I look at when I'm starting a new script, I honestly look at like, how the fuck did I do that? Because I don't know. And especially that episode, you know, the behind the scenes of that episode at all? Because, you know, as you I don't, but I want to know. And so does the audience. You mentioned earlier, I'm a Giants fan, which I mean, a diehard Giants fan. I was at the Super Bowl with, with Kevin Connolly, by the way, watching the Giants beat the Patriots in uh, fuck, in Arizona, wh- wh- whatever year that was, when the Patriots were undefeated. So 08, 09, whatever it was. can't believe I can't, rem- I can't remember years anymore. But about two weeks later, my cell phone rings, and it's Eli Manning, who wants to do the show and loves the show. And, uh, you know, just like LeBron James calls, wants to do the show, Eli Manning wants to do the show, you're doing the show. I write a script for Eli Manning. I get a call like while I'm doing it that I should write Peyton in also. So I write Peyton and Eli. Then now four months, five months, whatever later. And uh, so I call Eli. I have his number. I still don't even know how he got my number. He doesn't call me back. And I now have this script and I'm like, okay. I call him again. Hey, Eli, we're, you know, now we're getting ready to shoot. Um, Got the script done. Want to hear your thoughts? Nothing. I have Jerry who played turtle call him. Nothing. So now we get to like five weeks before filming and I'm, I'm in a bad spot. I mean, we're in the middle of a season and, you know, while, uh, you know, I, I hate to even keep bringing up, but I still, I have such animosity towards this guy to this day. I really do. So it's like, and he ruined my giants. I couldn't root for the giants anymore after this, but so he's not calling me back. And I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, how am I going to even replace them? I got Peyton and Eli Manning. Like, you know, it is not so simple to change a whole script around and what do you do and this and that. And then I'm thinking like, who's, what other brothers? Cause I've written all these jokes where, and he's not, hasn't read it. So it's not like Eli read it, didn't think it was funny, which would be totally his right. If he read it and said, I don't want to do it. I don't like it. Great. But I had, Eli was kind of like the Johnny drama. Peyton was kind of like the Vince. And we were making a lot of jokes about that, but I never heard back from the fucking guy. And then I'm in the office and I'm losing my mind because I've got to write the next episode. I'm shooting the last episode. And um, Mark, who's not in the office often, but he's in the office and everyone's like, Doug's freaking out. And I'm like pacing around my office, throwing shit. I'm like, I'm totally fucked. I don't know what I'm going to do. And Mark just goes, "Uh, what's the problem? I tell him this story and he goes, all right, you know, what if I call Tom Brady and me and him do it? And I was like, I'll figure out how to make that work, you know? And, And that's what changed it. But it was kind of like this thing. And then about four months later, uh, or, or like four weeks later, Eli's agent called me and was like, they lost to the Vikings the following year. And he said something like, which is another reason why I hate agents and I hate these athletes that, that hide behind them, but said something like, you know, he wants to focus on football. I'm sure you understand. And I said, let me tell you something. I work just as fucking hard as that guy. I get paid a lot less money than him. And I didn't call him. I didn't go, you know who I want on this show is Eli fucking Manning. So the fact that he didn't call me back 
and did that, I'll never, I'll, I will never forgive it. It's just like, it's such a, a fucking clown show to act like that. And um, that was it. But we got Mark and Tom, which obviously it was better than it would have been anyway. And like Entourage on the, on the camera, it always worked out. But for me, it affected my love of the Giants for years. I was like, I, I can't root for this guy. I mean, it just, you know, never an apology, never like sorry, nothing. So anyway, that's, that's my Eli story. <laughs> Does Giselle cook? Is that confirmed? <laughs> You know what? I don't even remember. I definitely wrote it before we met. I, I, I don't remember. But I mean, I met we went out to dinner once and she was awesome. So Did you like, like chocolate, too. You know, and I, I said like wine. turtle. I'm like, she's awesome. But she really was awesome. And they were I, I actually you know, what? it's it's sad to say <laughs> my ex-wife, we went to dinner with them and uh, and they really were like this great couple, whatever. And I, I've been with my wife at the time for like 14, 15 years. I don't even know. And I said, uh, I said, I said, do we connect like Tom and Giselle? <laughs> and I said something like, we need to connect like them. And my ex-wife, it was funny. She said, if you looked like Tom, maybe we would or something hey. like that. <laughs> and you didn't say any of the other thing because that would not have no. been good either. Don't even no. bring, I'm, I'm not even going to say it because that gives me anxiety just picturing you saying that to her. <laughs> Oh, uh, born and raised in Newark, New Jersey, uh, you know, by a single mother. I'm the second oldest of five and, you know, grew up in the area, you know, 15th Ave, 17th Street, uh, in the west ward of the city. A lot of, you know, gang, gang violence, drug violence, you know, carjackings, robberies, you name it. You know, it's all types of stuff. Crime written city, you know, it's gotten better over the years, you know, a bit better, but still, you know, kind of experiencing the same things. But, you know, I've experienced friends, you know, uh, you know, shot in front of my face, you know, had friends on my you know, high school team murdered, um, cold blood, all types of stuff. And then, you know, just experiencing that stuff in the city is, you know, it just, it just taught me to value life. You know, it's just like, you know, you have to cherish it you know, can't take it for granted. And then, you know, some of the lessons that I learned even from my mom was just, you know, don't expect, don't expect something for nothing. You know, don't expect anything to be handed to you in life. And you have to go out there and you have to work for any and everything that's going to uh, come your way or, you know, you're going to have an opportunity for it. So uh, I just kept that, that stuck with me. And, you know, for me, you know, getting to this point in my career, uh, knowing that I didn't, I didn't have access to some of, you know, the professional athletes or some of the, the financial, you know, literacy or credit repair courses or, you know, free training camps and stuff like that. You know, I didn't have access to that growing up. We didn't have anyone from the city that we knew that was going out there getting it done and then coming back and, you know, pouring that, their knowledge back into the city. So I always told myself, I made a commitment to myself that whenever I made it, that I wasn't going to forget where I came from. I was going to make it a point to go back, give back and to give those, you know, the youth pretty much everything that I've uh, been able to learn along the way. So, um, you know, I have a recreation center, you know, that was, uh, you know, over a year ago, they renamed it in my honor you know, in the city, which, you know, was a major part of my life because it just, it spoke to the, 
the the fact of how you know how much that I've been able to do over the years and give back to the city. But you know, I have a goal to bring you know financial literacy courses, tax tax type of programs where you know we're not the things that we really should be learning in school. We're not learning. You know, the things that's truly going to help you in life. You know, as far as the financial literacy, the financial freedom, things like that. That's what's going to take you a long way. And you know, I think it's crucial in uh, in urban areas, and that's what I'm going to you know, continue to do, give back, teach, and, you know, continue with the free camps as long, as soon as, you know, everything opens back up in the state from a COVID standpoint, you know, um, because I know, like, I, I still get messages to this day, kids are just so, when, when are you going to do your camp again? I look forward to the camp, you know, uh, are you doing it this year? And I just have to keep, man, you know, I'm, I just want to be safe. I don't want to, you know, rush it. And then, because, from the very first year when I started in 2014, we've averaged about 500 plus kids a year, you know? So, and I'm talking about free, all, no, all expenses, free, it's paid for, you know, just show up, listen, the, the the most I'm going to ask you for is your attention. Just listen, listen, soak it all up and have fun, you know, giving away, you know, free iPads, headphones, under armor gear, you know, just all you like all types of stuff. And just to see the smile on those children's faces, you know, like that's what made my day. That's what it's all about. You know, when you make it, you reach back down, you 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 lend a hand for the next tire whitehead and the next Colin Thompson, whoever it is, you know, you reach back and then you pour whatever you have of yourself a little more into someone else. Talked about the violence, the crime. How did you avoid it? Uh, honestly, um, I didn't, I, you know, I, I found myself being, uh, in the mix, you know, here and there, uh, you know, a few fights, you know, when you live in, you know, the gang areas, you know, you naturally just, you're affiliated just off of where you live, you know, oftentimes. And it's just like, that is what it is. So I, uh, I found myself having a fight, you know, on plenty of occasions, you know, you grow up, you have a friend, you know, it's like, look, he gets into it with some guys like, you know. Okay, that's 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 my boy. I'm not gonna just let them jump my boy. So, uh, as far as the extreme, you know, everybody has fights, right? You know, you know, yeah. you, it's, it's, you know, it, it is what it is. But as far as the extreme violence and things like that, uh, guns, knives, thing, I, I saw it and I just didn't want to be a part of it. You know, I didn't want to contribute to the things in which that was going on in my neighborhood uh, because I didn't agree with it. And on top of that, I never saw I never saw myself taking someone's life. I never wanted anyone to take my life. You know, I never wanted my freedom to be taken away from me. So I told myself, look, you know, you better stay out of the streets and stay involved in, you know, sports or something like that or, you know, whatever it is. But that's not the life you want. (laughs) So, you know, stay away from it, far away from. And you create a rec center or there is a rec center that's placed in your name. And that's a great way to give that opportunity. Right. And I'll never forget it. We were talking and I probably talked to you a handful of times this year about things I was struggling with, things that were going well, and just picking your brain on things. Obviously we have connection through temple, but someone I respect uh, as a, as a human, obviously as a player. And you're told me, you're like, Hey man, there's a rec center. They're naming a rec center after me. And I lit up like that's, that's the goal. Like, that's what it's all about. Like generational 
stuff to tell your kids about like, great. Like you made tackles and that's awesome for you personally, right. but you know, like it's cool. But at the end of the day, you, you, I mean, you really can't share that with anybody. Like you could share some wins, you could share some losses. You could sure share a Super Bowl. but I mean, they're hard to come by, but stuff like that, that's extremely hard to come by. Just talk about the whole process, finding out you're getting named that they're naming it after you. And then, you know, what's your involvement been since then? So, uh, Initially, you know, I like like I stated, you know, in 2014, started my uh, my free camp. So every year, you know, year after year, you know, handing out gifts, handing out, you know, just doing so much in the community. You know, you talk about coat drives, book bag drives, back to school drives, Thanksgiving. And, you know, I did it all just from the kindness of my heart. I never looked for anything in return. And I get a phone call. It had to been early February of uh, of what is it, 2020, and they're just like, you know, uh, look, you know, don't say nothing yet, but you know, it's just been approved that we're going to be renaming just uh, the Trek Center, you know, in your honor. And I'm like, get the hell out of here! <laughs> like, why, why are you playing with me? <laughs> you know, um, and they're like, no, I'm serious. You know, we just voted on, they passed it, and you know, it's going down. And at the time, I didn't understand the magnitude of what, you know, really what that meant until you know, I spoke to you know, some of my, uh, my mentors and they like, look, when you think of parks, streets, or sometimes, you know, buildings, you know, let's just say, uh, keep it there. When you think of buildings, uh, structures, you, they're often not named after someone unless they're retired from their field of work and or no longer here, you know, or, you know, they've, they've come and they've gone and, you know, now you have their, that they leave behind their legacy. He's like, you're still active in your field of work. You're still here, you know, with us and you're, you know, you're still doing things like that's major. It's, it's really, you know, it's rarely done, you know, and especially in, in the city. I don't think that no point in time it was ever done. Um, so it was it, it was extreme excitement on my end. And since then, like, I'm always on the phone with the, the uh, director of the uh, facility, you know, Marquise Lewis, who's really like a brother to me. And he, you know, we're constantly trying to figure out what programs we can bring to the city. You know, speaking to, uh, you know, another uh, Temple alum, you know, Tamiko Richardson, just, you know, trying to help me out bring uh, entrepreneurship programs, you know, to, to the facility and different areas of the country. And it's just like, we're trying to do so much and you mean well, and it's just like, you know, God shines his light down on you and, you know, he sees your hard work, he sees your efforts and you, he knows you mean well, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a blessing. Bunch of booze. It may actually triggered me. Pick a picture of you and I was going through some different things for our interview. <laughs> uh, the Eagle Super Bowl parade. What was that like? Oh, dude. One of so the Super Bowl is really cool. You know, obviously, not many people get to do it. One of the best things you'll ever get to experience as an athlete. Winning any championship is obviously really fun and really cool, and that's why you play the sport. But, bro, like, the parade is on a whole nother level. Like, that, when people ask me, like, what was my favorite part about that year? Uh, number one was, like, the guys that we did it with. But, like, number two, a close second was, like, dude, that parade 
was out of this world, man. Just so much fun. The city did it right. I mean, they were starving for a football championship, dude. They haven't won one. They never won a Super Bowl, but they won a championship, you know, way, way, way back. And so just to be able to do that um, in that city, bro, they deserved it. The way we did it was really cool, you know, as well. There's so many factors that, I mean, the way we did it, the guys we had, the city, the no championships, like, you know, all of that just blends in, you know, and it just makes the story, you know, so much cooler. Um, and yeah, dude, great time. Uh, probably my favorite Philly moment ever. Um, and you, you just couldn't, you can't replicate it. You can't beat it. I remember that morning I woke up at four because I was training at Temple and they were shutting streets down for the parade. So I'm like, oh man. So I got the Temple yeah. at like 6 a.m. And, and trained till like seven or eight and then got out of Dodge because it was just chaos. And I got home and that's right when Selleck was on the mic. Yeah. <laughs> you had a good or one Jason Kel- Or Jason Kelsey. Either or way. Kelsey too. Yeah. Who, who got the most banged up? Oh, dude. So, I, bro, Selleck is one of my favorite people ever, right? Favorite people. So, the tight ends were all – I think the running backs might have been as well, but I know – no, I think it was just – Tight ends. Who's your tight end room that year? It's a pretty good room. Dude, unbelievable room. So started up, started at top with a coach, Justin Peel. Great guy, phenomenal coach. Um, I think it was his, like his first or second year as being like an actual tight end coach. He played 10 years in the league. He's like the epitome of a, of a meathead. Like he wants you to run through every person, no matter Adamic and Sue. Like he wants either one of us, and we have no business running through Adamic and Sue. Like I would, I'll stay far away. You know what I mean? He wants you to do that. If you don't do that, he's going to yell at you. But phenomenal coach, right? We all really enjoyed being with him. Then you have Brent Selleck, the vet. I think he was on year 10, maybe 11 that year. He retired the following year. Um, Philly legend, you know, the best tight end to ever play in Philly. Um, and then you got Zach Ertz underneath him, who I – well, now, I mean, those are one and two, you know. Whoever, whatever you want to say, you can say one guy, I'll say the other guy, like whatever. They're both top two tight ends ever play in Philly. Um, then you had me um, and a, a guy named uh, Billy Brown was there. Uh, I don't know. But it was just us three, me, Zach, and uh, okay. and Selleck. So, so it was just really you three that good. Okay, wow, that's cool. Yeah. That's rare. Like that's a that's a lean group. I mean, you guys are all really yeah. good, so that helps a lot. But rooms are a little yes, bit that, bigger. Yes, that was our group, bro, and we were all on the bus together. And like, I'll never forget. Like Selleck was so banged up. Well, at first, yeah, Billy was there because Billy was in charge of bringing beers onto the bus, right? And so, like, what people don't realize is that they were telling us the parade's going to be two hours long, right? You you get on the bus at ten o'clock. You're back by 12 at the latest, bro. We didn't get back until like 5:45 that afternoon. Like it was literally like a five, six, five, six, seven hour parade, which obviously made it so much, so much more fun. But Billy's in charge of bringing the beers, you know. And so Billy gets there, he has like a like a 12 pack of beers. <laughs> like, Billy, there's four of us, four just four guys, not even including the women. You know, what I mean, four guys, and you bring in you bring in 12 beers for a two hour, supposedly two hour, you know, uh, should have had 12 uh, cases. celebration. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm thinking to myself, like, we're not going to have enough beer. Like, this is going to be bad. And I'm not a beer drinker, but like, whatever, I'll, I'll do it. You know, dude, I don't even know if we, we might've drank one beer from Billy and we were drinking whatever people were throwing at us. And I, I can't chug, I couldn't chug it. You told me I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars right now to drink a beer in less than five seconds. I couldn't do it. I, honestly, I'll try as hard as I could, but I can't do it. Bro, we were downing beers, bro. And they were freaking throwing beers. We're chugging them. Uh, they're throwing the, the little liquor, uh, uh, little, I don't know what they are. They're not pints, but they're small. The little one yeah. shots. Yeah. yeah one yeah. shot, one shooters, bro. And you're just shooting them and, and beer and shooting them. And you're like, 
you look as soon as you look to the crowd, a beer is coming. You look the other way, a beer is coming, bro. Like we're catching beers, making sure they're not hitting the ladies and like hitting ourselves. And uh, we had no shortage of whatever you could ever imagine during that time. So, but so to say all that, Selig was banged up, bro. And I, I, I was telling Selig, bro, you don't gotta, you don't gotta speak. He's like, no, I gotta do it for the city. I'm like, bro, like you don't gotta do it, bro. Like it's not that big of a deal. He's like, no, I got, I'm, I'm trying to try and talk him off the cliff. And, but long story short, he ends up doing it. Phenomenal speech, you know, obviously a legend in Philly, but what a great time, man. Great, great event. And uh, it was really, really cool to be a part of. What an event. I remember seeing it on TV. Like, man, this is, this is what you got to do. This is the dude doing it, bro. And probably like, and guys would get off the, off the trolley and they would walk in like, they would literally walk miles and like high five and fans and like, being a part of and like brother Philly fans love that stuff, dude. It was just and as far as your eye could see, like literally, no, no joking, no exaggeration. Like as soon as you get to center city, like you're going around uh, uh city, hall. city hall, yeah. Going around city hall, and bro, as far as you can see, it's people just going nuts and it's a great time. Yeah, because you're looking down, you're going down Broad Street and you're yeah. looking east and west, and they're just piles of people. Yeah, you hit Broad Street and it's a, it's a roundabout, but we went the opposite way because everything obviously everything's closed off. So we go, you we take a left. left as soon as we hit City City Hall, yeah, mm-hmm. and to go to the Rocky Steps, and uh, it was cool, man, unbelievable event. They did they did the right, they did a really good job. Where do you keep your ring? Is it in a case? You got a little trophy case? Yeah, we have a safe um, here in Tampa, but I take it with me whenever I'm playing. So like whenever I'm in Indy, I bring it with me. Um, you really don't you really don't wear it as often as you would think. You know, maybe yeah. three times a year, you know, um, and one of those being the Super Bowl that year. So, um, but it, man, it's it's cool to look at. I, I just got it cleaned recently, probably like two weeks ago. Um, but yeah, bro, they did that right too. It was, it was a good job. They did a good job with all that. Is it a is it a massive rock? Like, is it just? I've seen the pictures of it. It's unreal. Plus, the Eagles Green School. Yeah. Yeah, it's, awesome. it's a good size. It's it, The cool yeah. thing about it, and I guess that's what kind of everybody's get going to now, is that, like, every diamond, every emerald, every, like, etching it means something. You know, like, everything – they use the whole entire ring to make the whole entire thing you know, encompass the season. And so um, they did a really good job with that. It was cool because, like, for me, the, the, they have a 100 and – I forgot, 130-something yeah, diamonds on the top of – the uh the ring and the reason they chose that many diamonds was because it was the the at the numbers of the guys who touched the ball during the philly special so i was 88 uh uh cory clement was 30 and 30. nick Foles was nine and so like all of us combined the not whatever that is uh is how many diamonds they put on top of the ring so like it's cool for me like i'll always be able to tell my family like my kids like dude if I was 47, like I was the year before, like that's what 41 less diamonds. You know? <laughs> Thank God you changed your number. Track. Goodness, all the Eagles, yeah, bro. all the Eagles players are saying the same exact thing right now. Yeah, bro. You know, we played for some great organizations. Don't get me wrong, but play for the green Bay Packers. We played there this year and it was so cool yeah. of a place to play and the history. And, and, you know, it's something to be said. Yeah, it's absolutely one of the most like unique experiences I've had in football. And just everything about like the organization is just like first class. And I know, like I think I talked about this before, but on Alyssa's podcast, but there's like a standard there that is just like you're supposed to win 
and you're supposed to do the right things off the field. And basically they expect like to be a Super Bowl contender every year. And I mean, I was only there for, I guess, six weeks. So this is a very like, I guess, shallow kind of experience, but nonetheless, I was around it every day. I got to be in the locker room with all the guys. So it's just like a very first class organization. I think the first day I got signed, like everybody already knew my name, like the strength staff, the, uh, the cooks, the equipment guys. Like, I feel like that just says a lot. I'm a practice squad punter and they already know who I am. Like that's, I'm basically nobody on that team. Like I thought that was pretty cool. And just how like guys interact in the locker room, very like college at college feel where there's like camaraderie and everybody is, you know, generally on the same page in terms of like, you know, wanting to have team success and, you know, just a very, uh, very cool experience. Very fortunate to, you know, have a chance to go back and compete for a job there. So I had Trey Burton on this previous podcast and Trey and I spoke about how you always think the NFL is going to be this unreal place. And it is an unbelievable place, but not all organizations are ran the same, which I think is interesting. And like you said, Green Bay, first class. And I played for, honestly, all first class places. I've been very fortunate. But it's so interesting. If you think about like the business model of Green Bay, there's no owner. Everybody in that town owns the team. So everything gets put back on team. I think that's just such an interesting thing. And I think that's maybe why they have been so successful in a way. It's like, it's just such a bought in approach. There's no other agenda in there. Do you agree, disagree, or maybe fill us in on on what you think about, you know, the town being so involved in the team? Yeah, absolutely. And when I try to like explain what Green Bay is like, it's just like small town USA. The airport is so small. Downtown is like two blocks there's no high rises. The biggest structure in the city is green. I can't, like, I don't even know if you can refer to Green Bay as a city because, like, what we're used to, Philly or New York or Pittsburgh, something like that, it, it's not even, you can't compare the two. It's like a very small town, Midwest, USA feel. And the Packers are basically, like, I want to say the pride and joy of the area. Like, people just are bought in. Like, football is very important to them. And, I think that the players there understand that it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of a privilege to play there because you're playing for much more than I guess, you know, the team, it's like the whole entire area. It's like a culture, it's a environment that you're kind of, you know, being thrust into, I guess. It's almost like the gator flag behind me when I see that. And again, I'm, I'm down here in my garage right now because we got some construction going around us and this is the quietest <laughs> place in the house. Um, but like when I was in Gainesville, I'll never forget it. Now this is a college, right? This is kind of expected in a small town, middle of nowhere. The campus is, you know, the stadiums the, is the biggest part of the whole city. And without sure. the campus, you know, this, there's no city. Yep. And people are like throwing beers to you and like throwing you sandwiches and like inviting you into your tailgate. Like to, for me to walk five blocks home, took like two hours like I literally couldn't get home you see like all the people that you knew around town and Mm -hmm. like when we pull I hear like stories about people pull up to park in Green Bay and you park in someone's front yard and then you walk in their garage and watch like the pregame and eat meals like 
that's incredible stuff. And just the town, I was able to walk around it when we played there, we stayed right downtown in that convention center. Yep. And I just wanted to get out and walk because it was a night game. And I, I don't, I love night games, but I need to like break the day up and like do something in the morning. I can't just like lay in bed all day. Mm -hmm. um, but talk to us about, this is not a normal year. You've done kicking workouts before for probably a dozen teams. Now you fly in, you punt, you leave, or you stay. I've done it for half a dozen teams where you fly sure. in. I hit the bag maybe five times. I run 10 <laughs> routes and then I get on a plane or I stay. Yeah. Um, and we've both been on the plane more than we stayed. I think that's fair to say, sadly, but that's just the nature of the business. Mm -hmm. But you stayed in Green Bay. Yeah. Talk about the COVID process, yeah. starting with the call from our agents to getting signed. Sure. So it's actually hilarious how it works. So the whole fall, so I get, I'm in Arizona training camp last year. There's no preseason. You know that. So uh, um, I get cut. I go back to my parents' house. And all fall, I don't have any workout. I have zero, nothing. So it's like November. It's like getting towards the mid-November. And we've, I think we've mentioned this, but like <laughs> it's hard to work out and like continue to kind of like stay in this mindset where there's literally nothing in the pipeline. Like you're just doing this for no reason is what it seems like. So how, I start, how, many, how many years have we been in it now? Four, five? So – yeah, this will be upcoming. This will be my fourth training camp. So like, this is not, this is not like you're fresh out and you're like excited. It's the NFL at this point. It's like, okay, I need this to manifest into something, or I need to begin to like move on with my life and see what else is out there post football. So I'm completely at that stage mid November of this past fall. I start interviewing places. I start, you know, getting my resume out, trying to use my network to kind of position myself basically to hang the cleats up. So I tell Warren this, I'm like, Hey, Warren, like he, and this is what he pitched me when we first sat down and which is why I like them from the jump. He would never lie to me. And he would tell me straight up, like what's going on. So I, I said, Hey, you need to tell me straight up. Like, am I staying ready for a purpose? Like, am I still going to get a shot or is it time for me to move on? And he said it, he basically said, you need to stick it out. Like you need to stick it out. So a week after that conversation, he calls me and says, hey, Green Bay wants to fly out for a workout. So it's funny how that happens. So I go out to now getting, sorry, this is long-winded, but getting back to like COVID this year for a workout. Normally, you, you find out you have a workout, you fly out the day before the workout, you stay one night, you have the workout, either you get signed or you fly home. But because of COVID, I had to fly into Green Bay, I think six days before my workout. And this is like, I think I, my workout was scheduled for uh, like December 27th. So I'm out in Green Bay at a hotel by myself for Christmas. Like literally, I, I don't know one person there. Uh, you have to stay in the hotel. I don't have a car. Luckily, they, they were giving me um, money for the restaurant that was in the hotel. And luckily, the hotel was like beautiful. It was really nice. And the, the food was awesome. And the staff was awesome. But uh, so I'm in Green Bay by myself for six days. Just they gave me footballs. There was a little turf field in Titletown, USA, which is right by the stadium. Um, so I'm out there literally punning, trying to stay ready for this workout with like 40 little kids playing backyard football, which was actually phenomenal. And it like brought me back to my youth. 
but and um, you're in Green Bay over the holidays. It's definitely yes. flurrying while you're punting. Like, it's freezing cold. Like I and I don't have it. Yeah, I don't have like any like the cold gear. I'm just out there freezing. But you have to stay ready. I, I can't just not punt for six days and then supposed to punt for the for this workout where it's like I'm on my last breath in the NFL. Like I need to perform at this. So get through get through the six days. Test negative. Have my workout and do well at the workout. And it, it's funny how this happens, but um, in the NFL, there's a workout list that goes out to all the teams. So each week, all 32 teams get a list of the names of guys who teams have brought in for a workout. So it seems like Arizona caught wind that I was in Green Bay working out. So they decided that they wanted to sign me to the practice squad. And so basically what I think Warren and the guy and Paul and the guys did was leverage that to kind of influence Green Bay to like make a decision quicker because after the workout, they said, okay, you know, you did well, we like you, we want to sign you, but probably next week. So I think they used that as leverage to say, okay, next week he might be signed. He might be in Arizona signing to them. So why don't you just sign him now? So basically sign me and you know, I start practicing maybe a couple of days later. It was after you guys played, actually. Did you guys play on a Thursday night football, right? Yeah. So we I was out there. I was in night. Green Bay. We didn't play Thursday night, it but was, you were there in a hotel while we were playing. I was there. there. Yeah, That's yeah. Correct. It was a Sunday. It was watching. a Sunday. It was a Sunday yep. night. So I was there. It was before. That. It was before Christmas, I believe, we played out okay. there. Right okay, before. So then that, that was early in my stay then. But then, so that next week, I guess it was that Friday or Saturday I signed to the practice squad, I think before the Tennessee Titans game, that might've been week 16. So yeah, just a crazy turn of events for me, like basically seeming like my time in the NFL, my time in football is over. I kind of accepted that I was ready to transition to then being thrust back into the NFL locker room, back on the practice field where you're supposed to perform in front of, everybody the team the scouts the gm everybody so definitely um an interesting fall for me but very you know pumped to have another opportunity uh i feel like my time in green bay like reinvigorated my passion for football again and like why i dealt with all the bs and why i've done this for the last three years and why i continue to pursue like where i'm trying to go just because you know, it was awesome to be back in the locker and to be around the guys and to have that, like, have that juice again to go out there and have to perform at, at a high level. So it, it, was, uh, it was awesome. And even though time goes on and you found someone new. Auburn, you were stopped there for two years and then Tennessee. The big one, obviously, the, the career driver for you. And, you know, a lot of it's about Coach Summit, and rightfully so. She is the best coach ever in all sports, one of them. But for you, your role there, can you define it? Or it, you can't put it in a box, I'm sure. No, that's one thing when you work for Pat Summit, you are never in a box. You were, you had, you wore many hats. Um, and she told me this, she said, no job is ever too small or too big for you. Do you understand that? I was like, yes, ma'am. She said, and I, I, I go by that same philosophy. For, you know, so we knew that whatever Pat asked us to do as, as her staff, 
she was willing to do it or she'd already done it. So she was a tremendous leader. And I've, I've worked for a lot of people since then and prior to Pat. And I've worked for some, I think I've worked for five Hall of Fame coaches, six including Pat. So I've worked for some really good people. But she by far is the best leader that I have ever worked for. And in a way it's been a, a curse because the bar was set real high, <laughs> very high. And it's not, it's just so hard to, you know, you just want, you just go, oh, would Pat do that? Would Pat do that? <laughs> you know, how would Pat handle this? And uh, that, that experience for me was invaluable. I mean, she, we were good friends. We were, she played so many roles in my life that I, actually I didn't even realize it till she was no longer here. What a big gap she left in uh, not just in my life and in, in many people's lives. Um, but yeah, working for her, I, I owe so much to her and, 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 and a lot of coaches that I, that I worked with, but she was a tremendous influence in, in my coaching career and in my, and in my personal life because she was such a woman of character, never wavered with her character. It didn't matter how big the pressure got, <laughs> nothing squeezed her, nothing, nothing ever. When it came to her core beliefs, they were just, just solid as a rock. I'm sure she has those same core beliefs with, with her children and the children have instilled in them. But there's a funny story about you guys on a flight going to Pennsylvania That's and right. she was having a child. Can you tell that story? That's right. Well, she was pregnant with her, with her, with her son, Tyler. And, uh, we were, she was in her ninth month of pregnancy and we were on a private plane cause she couldn't fly commercial. And we, we fortunately we were able to fly private quite a bit at Tennessee. And we flew up to Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is a solid two and a half hour flight from Knoxville and Michelle Marciniak, who was a all American little point guard from Allentown being highly, highly recruited by everybody. So we'd already had to cancel one recruiting with her because of Pat, something with Pat's health and the doctor said, not sure you need to go. So we rescheduled it. Pat said, we're going. And I said, well, Pat, no, no, no. I, we're going, I've already canceled one. I'm not going to cancel another one with this young lady. I said, okay. So we get on the plane, we land. Well, her water broke when we landed in Allentown. So right when we landed, she goes, oh, Demoss. She goes, oh, I think my water broke. Well, me being naive, never had children. Not only, what, I said, now, what exactly does that mean, Pat? She goes, well, that means that I may be going into contractions here pretty soon. I said, what? I said, we need to get, get these pilots. We're going to turn right around and we're going right back to Knoxville. She goes, oh, no, we're not. We're going to go do this home visit. We're not going to cancel again. I said, Pat, you got to be kidding me. I said, I said, call your doctor first, you know, so call the doctor. Doctor said, well, that, you know, he wasn't going to tell Pat. He goes, well, Pat, just use your own judgment, whatever you think. So <laughs> she comes back. She goes, yeah, come on tomorrow. Doctor says, fine. So I says, fine. Let's go. Let's, let's head on to Michelle's house. We get to her house where she goes into these contractions. She's back in another room and I'm doing the recruiting visit. She's back in another room and I can hear her moaning and groaning about every 30 seconds. And I'm like, and she said, don't you tell them what's going on because I don't want to distract them from your presentation. 
So I said, at least tell the mother, at least tell Michelle's mother what's going on. Cause the dad was in there with me, the brother, Michelle. So the mama was back there with Pat. And so finally, you know, she comes in and she goes, DeMoss. And I looked up, I'm doing my, trying to focus on my recruiting presentation. You know, the dorms are here and the cafeteria, you know, I'm like, really Pat? So she comes in and she goes, DeMoss, we need to leave. I said, okay, okay. And I still couldn't say anything. Like, why? I was like, okay, that sounds good, Pat. We'll wrap it up right now. She goes, no, I mean, we need to leave right now. And I knew then that it was, I said, you got it. You got it. So I, I said, well, folks, that about wraps it up. I hope you enjoyed the presentation. And about that time, Michelle looks up. She goes, what is going on? You know, what's going on? And so Betsy, her mother goes, uh, Pat is in labor. She's about to have her baby. And they're like, what? And so, man, I hightail it to the car. We were in a rental car. I get in the, I don't, I don't think I handle pressure very well. I get in the car and I go, my mind's blank. I don't know how to get back to there. Where's the airport? Like we didn't have GPS back then. I was like, where the heck is the airport? So Michelle and her brother goes, hey, follow us. Just follow us. We'll take you because it's a private airport. Take we're flying back. We're getting construction. I'm yelling and screaming and banging on the steering wheel going, Pat, we should have called a, you know, an escort, a police escort to get us back screaming. And um, I said, what else do you need me to do? What do you need me to do, Pat? She goes, first thing I need you to do is calm down. She said, you're not having this baby. I am. I go, oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. We're good. We're good. So we get on the airplane. The pilots are freaking out because Pat is in labor. I'm freaking out. So I'm going, okay, okay. So I had to give the keys to the people at the counter, Pat, and they help her on the plane. And so when I get on the plane, she hands me this glass and it's a sh two shots of Jack Daniels. She goes, here, DeMoss, this is what I got you. And I, and I look at her because we didn't have any alcohol on the school plane. And she, I said, where did you get this? I said, what is this? She goes, it's Jack Daniels. I said, I don't know, Pat. I don't know if you need to be drinking, you know, like going. She goes, no, no, it's not for me. It's for you. And I said, okay. I said, where'd you get that? She goes, the plane next door. I sent the pilot over there to go get you some bourbon. And I said, <laughs> I said, thank God. So we are, that was the longest two hours. It took us two hours to get back because those pilots put the pedal to the metal. That little school King Air, we were going as fast as that thing <laughs> would go. They kept telling me, pilot would come back and I was massaging Pat's back. She was moaning and groaning. She, pilot would come back and say, now Mickey, I've got an ambulance in uh, Virginia, in Richmond, Virginia. Now we can sit this plane down. You're gonna have a, uh, ambulances there waiting on us. We've got everything worked out. So she could hear the pilot telling me that. And so I'd say, okay, okay. I said, now how far is Richmond? Uh, we should get there in about 45 minutes. I said, okay. So then Pat would say, DeMoss, come here. So I'd go down to the back of the plane. She'd say, if you let these pilots land this plane anywhere but Knoxville, Tennessee, you're going to have a mad woman on your hands. Do you understand me? And I knew when Pat meant business. I said, yes, ma'am, I do. I went back up to the front of the plane. I said, hey, guys, do not put this plane down, but anywhere but Knoxville, Tennessee. What if she has that baby on this airplane? I said, if she does, we'll figure it out. I said, but do not land this airplane. 
because Virginia had beaten us the year before. The University of Virginia had beaten us in overtime to keep us from getting to the final four that we were hosting in Knoxville. So that was another motivation for Pat to not have her baby in the state of Virginia. Now that's how personal wow. he took that, that she was loss. dialed in. And I said, okay, you got it, Pat, you got it. And so I was trying to motivate her and talk to her and going, Pat, you can do this. And, you know, and so-and-so's mama had 11 children. Remember her, it was the people we'd, some kid we'd recruited and she had 11 children. I said, remember Miss so-and-so, she had 11 children. Surely you can have one. And she goes, I'm not worried about the pain. I'm not worried about that, Mickey. And I go, well, what are you worried about? I'm just worried about having this plane, uh, this baby on this airplane and you having to, I said, oh, well, that makes two of us. That makes two of us. No, you don't need to have this baby on this airplane. I can assure you that. So somehow we got back to Knoxville in time for her to have that baby. And we had ambulances there waiting and her husband was there and, and about the time we got close to Knoxville, I said, well, Pat, we're, we're almost there. We're almost there, buddy. We're almost there. And she said, you're going to come in the ambulance with me, aren't you? And I knew I wasn't. I was so done with that. I said, Pat, look, you got med medical people there. RB's going to be there. I said, no. I said, you don't need me there. She goes, yes, I do. I said, why? She said, you're the only one that knows what to do. I said, I know you're delirious now. If you think I'm the only one that knows what to do. So I said, no, I'm out. I said, you're, you're, you're going to be in good hands. So she, they got her to the airport and she had her, her son a few hours later. Wow. Where do I even start? How a couple questions. Well, one statement first, the pilots have that story to tell for, for forever. Uh, exactly. Uh, and when we landed, they said, come on to Moss. We've got it. We've got some more bourbon in our office in the airport i said let's go we went in there and just knocked out about a fifth of bourbon <laughs> i was gonna ask you how quick did you finish the bourbon on the plane oh that was like the first five minutes i chugged that i felt a oh. lot better after that jack daniels oh my god even though time goes on and you found someone new i never thought you were acting but on the come around, there'll be another one on your own.